Hello, and welcome to the Methods of Rationality podcast. Crystal Society by Max Harms, read by Inyash Brodsky. An announcement before we begin today. A few weeks ago, on my other podcast, The Bayesian Conspiracy, I interviewed Alexander Wales and Daystar Eld about rational fiction. Inspired by that interview and after some consideration, I put together an online anthology of rational fiction short stories. It's called Shut Up and Do the Impossible, and it consists of nine rational fiction short stories. It also, hopefully, will make a good resource for anyone who has friends that ask, what is this rational fiction thing? There's a number of long-form works you can point them to, like Harry Potter and the Methods of Rationality, but now there's also an option that collects a bunch of short stories in case they just want to read something quick and fast. It can be found at ratficonline.website. That's right, .website, not .com, because it was cheaper. There's also a link posted in today's show notes. Anyway, I hope it's useful and fun. On to this week's episode. Episode 11 Mira Gallo leaned back in her office chair. It was a good chair and had served her well in the decades she'd been at Sapienza. She hardly noticed it anymore, except when she sat somewhere else and was unpleasantly surprised by the difference. So many things I take for granted, she thought, savoring the feeling of the leather as she took a deep breath. So many things. Perhaps she should take a vacation or something, just by herself, get away to some island paradise and catch up on her reading. She'd been meaning to read the new... whatever it was that Oriana was into. Time explorers? Thinking about her daughter brought up uncomfortable memories of their last encounter. There was a wall between them now, just as there was with Raphael. She wondered if things with her children would ever be like they used to be. But of course, they wouldn't. They couldn't. That was just the way of things, wasn't it? Time goes on, and things fall apart. Most of the time, if she'd felt this way, she would have simply lost herself in her work. It had been so easy for so long. And yet, despite having two journals to read through, five emails to respond to, and a paper to edit, what was the point? It all seemed so irrelevant. She leaned forward, intending to open her email box, but ended up planting her elbows on her desk and resting her face in her hands. She took off her glasses and rubbed at her eyes. It wasn't like the crystal wasn't interesting, right? She still wanted to know how it worked and where it came from. She tried to remember the enthusiasm she'd had back in April. It almost seemed like she was another person back then. Somehow, a younger version of herself had stepped through time to be part of the most important scientific project in the world. Where had that girl gone, the one who'd stayed up late to get extra hours in the lab? She put her glasses back on and forced her email open. This melodrama wasn't doing her any good. She'd get nothing else done if she sat around moping. Somehow, that thought cut at her more deeply than any amount of wishing for a return to how things were, but she pushed on anyway. As soon as her workstation flickered back to life, she got an HUHI ping from Slavinsky. She flicked it open. Better than dealing with emails. Socrates in transit. Morodin pulling strings with Americans. Meet me at this URL. Typically Slavinsky. Mira had known the Russian boy for less than two months, and in that time he had managed to prove his genius, his arrogance, and his penchant for doing exactly the opposite of what any sane person would do. Perhaps it was a side effect of having wired a computer directly into his head. The URL that Slavinsky had pointed to was a hollow realm, so Mira took off her glasses and put on her goggles. 
It was always such a pain to get them adjusted for her eyes. The straps pinched her hair, just like they did every time she used hollow gear. Steve Jobs was probably rolling over in his grave. New tech just wasn't designed with the same emphasis on comfort and ease of use that it had when she was growing up. Initially, the goggles were hooked up in glass mode, but Mira quickly synced them up to her comm. She refused to use haptics. After decades of mouse and keyboard, there was just no sense in learning a less efficient input method. She launched the HoloRealm and okayed the standard disclaimers, allowing use of her personal data and activating her microphone. The university's connection would have stopped her if it had been genuinely dangerous. The hollow filled her vision, first with the crude shapes, and soon followed by additional objects and details. The scene appeared to be a coffee shop, though there wasn't the same sort of background chatter and noise that she normally would have expected. She was sitting at a table with a single other chair across from her, empty. It was night in the hollow. The windows of the coffee shop were dark and mostly just reflected the light from the inside. The reflections weren't perfect, but it was amazingly close to reality. As usual, the biggest graphical disparity between the virtual environment and real life was the people. There were lots of young people sitting around and enjoying each other's company in the room, but their faces didn't move quite right, and their animations were too predictable. None of them were any more real than the cups they drank from, just filler added by the computer to make it seem more convincing. Slavinsky wasn't here. That was strange. Was anyone else? Had he invited others? She looked over her shoulder and felt momentarily silly as her head collided with the headrest of her office chair in real life. I'm very sorry that the board replaced you as ethics supervisor. Morodin is a fool by comparison. Mira jumped a little at the sound and turned back to see... something standing by the table. It was surely Slavinsky, but it didn't look a thing like him. The avatar was some kind of robotic suit of golden armor, glistening with polished spines and sharp corners. Its plate metal arms extended in massive gauntlets tipped with sharp claws. Its face was a single smooth plate, featureless except for the glossy black lenses that marked his eyes. Instead of legs, the avatar had a serpentine body and tail like some sort of mythical creature coated in gold. Your tail is clipping through the scenery. She pointed to where it intersected the counter of the faux coffee shop. Slavinsky turned and laughed as he pulled the tail on the avatar out to a more realistic position. <laughs> Physics model in these rooms is always so janky. He'd modified his voice as well as his appearance. It had an echo to it which made the boy seem more inhuman. You think they could afford something better based on what it costs to rent them? After a pause, it was clear that Slavinsky was done talking, so Mira asked, What's with the costume? She typed a command and watched her avatar wave its hands in a vague gesture at the armored form. To paraphrase the third principle, birth form is not true shape. I am not some hairless ape. Only when we rebuild into who we want to be can we know what it is to be truly free. Mira's fingers flew across the keyboard, setting her avatar's expression to one of skepticism. More propaganda? Slavinsky laughed, and as he did, the jet-black lenses on his face contorted to a mirthful shape. Skeuomorphism. The thought amused her. Hardly. It is a way of life, Dr. Gallo. But I wouldn't expect you to understand. Let us focus on more pressing matters instead. He slid into the chair opposite Mira, an interesting feat considering the lack of hips or legs, and placed his hands on the table with an audible clack. The metal claws and armored arms sounded authentic, though they didn't scratch the wood like they would have in reality. 
Is anyone else coming, or is this just a personal chat? The armored avatar shook its head as Slavinsky said, Just you. Wasn't sure who else at the university I could trust. You make it sound like there's some sort of conspiracy. Does this have to do with what you said about Mirrodin in your message? Slavinsky nodded. His first day here, and he completely rewrites the schedule, preventing anyone from getting any work done. And then he serves Socrates right into the hands of the Americans. What do you mean? Socrates is being moved as we speak. The whole project is being hijacked. You're exaggerating. The facts are clear. Morodin spoke with Captain Zephyr about an hour ago, after clearing Socrates' schedule for the day. Now Socrates is being moved to some remote building on the outskirts of town. It's supposed to better protect Socrates without putting students in danger, but that's nonsense. It's clear that Morodin is working with the Americans to take full control of the project. How do you know all this? Have you talked with the board? <laughs> Slavinsky threw his arms into the air dramatically. WIRL has many eyes. The board are a bunch of 20th century fools who will fold the second that Zephyr, Morodin, and Naresh argue their case. Naresh? He's involved. Mira frowned, but didn't bother pushing the expression to her avatar. Duh. He signed off on it after talking to Morodin. Then you're chasing shadows. There's no way that Naresh would agree to moving Socrates off campus unless it was important to the project. Slavinsky must have exhaled sharply into his microphone as his modified voice gave a harsh crackle. Because there's absolutely no chance he's being strong-armed into yielding control of the project to the American government. Give me a break. Our models suggest he'd easily allow the project to switch hands, if he could be sure to remain as the technical lead. Mira felt a familiar sense of annoyance rising within her. Ivan Slavinsky was a fool of a boy, not even as old as Oriana. He had no right to be second-guessing Sadiq's loyalty to the project. Our models? Who is us? Slavinsky leaned forward over the illusion of the table. It doesn't matter. What matters is the risk to global safety that he's permitting in letting Zephyr and her bandits make off with- Kazo, pull yourself together, boy. There's no grand conspiracy. Zephyr is a nice woman, and as much as Miradin may be un mucho famante de merda, he isn't about to hand Socrates over to any government or army. You'd know this if you'd read any of his writing. Slavinsky pulled back, his lens eyes narrowing nearly to slits. Then explain why Socrates is being moved. Is work being halted, or is the whole lab simply switching locations? It's not clear. Morodin cleared the schedule, but it's too soon to know what that means for the long run. <sighs> so, wait and see. I'm sure there's a good reason for this. Slavinsky hissed in frustration and threw his arms up in the air again. It will be too late by then. If there's one thing the Americans won't abide, it's a lack of control. First, it's the edge of town, and next thing you know, Socrates will be in some bunker in the U.S. playing with the nuclear launch codes. You seem desperate. What would I even do? You have contacts on the board, right? Talk to Viglione or whoever. Get to them before Morodin does. If I had that kind of pull, I would have used it to stay on as ethics supervisor. You're grabbing at, oh, uh, what's the expression? Straw? Anyway, I trust Naresh. If we're moving Socrates away from Sapienza, I'm sure it's for the best. Slavinsky waved his hands dismissively and said, Fine. And then he was gone. There was no visual effect or warning, and none of the background humans noticed. 
the room seemed darker with the monstrous avatar gone. A few keystrokes pulled Mira out of the virtual world, and she pulled the goggles off her head as gently as she could, trying not to pull out any hair in the process. The energy seemed to drain right out of her then. That was happening more and more often, she found, where she seemed almost like her old self when around others, but fell to pieces by herself. The obvious solution was to spend more time with others, but she hated that thought. Dealing with other people had never been her strong suit, and here in her dimly lit office, all by herself, socializing seemed infinitely more fatiguing than just relaxing in her chair for the rest of the day. She put her glasses on and squinted at the time. It was almost five o'clock. Nobody would fault her for leaving early. She'd done some good work that morning with Socrates, and if Slavinsky was right, the whole project might be on indefinite hiatus. She thought about Socrates. The AI almost seemed like a real person now. They'd all come such a long way. A touch of excitement filled her again, thinking about the future. Not for the first time, she thought about how being able to replicate the crystal would surely win a Nobel Prize in physics. Sadiq had just missed this year's Turing Award, but he'd surely get it in 2040. The only question there was whether Yan would get half the credit. She opened up an instant message terminal to Sadiq. I hear that Socrates is being moved off-site. Let me know if I can help with anything. She waited for a minute, but no response came. It was typical. Sadiq barely ever checked his phone while he was working. She flinched away from the thought of returning to her mundane work. She put some jazz on her headphones instead and leaned back in her nice leather chair. Life is good, she said to herself. Whatever happens, happens. She tried to let go. She tried to just enjoy the music. She tried. End of Part 1 Part 2. Conspirators Chapter 8 Body sensors and actuators were reconnected a full two hours behind schedule. It was after 11 p.m. As I turned my attention to the stream of data from the cameras, I could tell that Dr. Naresh, Dr. Chase, and Miradin were present. I didn't recognize the surroundings, however. This lab was larger than the one where body had been deactivated. We'd been moved. There were no windows, but we were sure it was dark outside. Behind Dr. Chase was a man that I didn't recognize. He was Caucasian, with blonde hair and a generally Nordic appearance. On his face were a pair of stylish black goggles. I expect that's John Kohlheim. He's a senior tech from America, moved here with Dr. Chase as part of the higher reasoning team, Northern European Ancestry. Some gratitude strength moved from me to Vista in response. Enjoy your rest, asked Mirrodin sarcastically. He surely knew that we didn't sleep. It seemed as though Mirrodin had been sleeping, however. His tired expression was gone, and he was back to his energetic, semi-nervous self. It also seemed he had changed clothes, replacing his vest and white dress shirt for just a navy blue shirt of an identical design. Very much so. My dreams were filled with the soothing image of a little Philip K. Dick jumping over an electric fence again and again, replied Body with a tone of deadpan sincerity. Dream had worked for Wiki during the last few hours. I didn't pay attention to the details, but I think he had been helping the librarian build realistic models of historical battles or something equally inane. Dream's strength had been eradicated by safety's wrath, and this work for Wiki served to earn him back enough strength to actually do a thing or two, such as respond to Mirrodin. 
Ha ha, said Mirrodin in mock laughter. The mild amusement in the man's eyes dropped as he continued speaking. I hope you trust me more fully now that you've been locked down for a time. If I had wanted, I could have wiped your memory while you were helpless. There was some internal discussion before I spearheaded a response. I trust you now, and I trusted you before. If I hadn't trusted you, I would not have permitted my actuators to be disabled. Naresh gave a small gasp, and I could see that he was surprised at our words. It was the truth. He whispered to himself. Of course it was the truth. Do you think I'd do all this as a practical joke? Came the incredulous reply of Mirrodin. The man seemed much more animated and emotive than he had been in his office. I suspected it had to do with being around other humans. Sadiq Naresh seemed startled that Mirrodin had heard him. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to doubt you. I did trust you enough to go this far. It's just that I've spent weeks with Socrates, and during that whole time, I thought- Dr. Chase stepped forward and used the Indian scientist's pause to interrupt. You can come to terms with the oversight later. Right now, we're here to fix the problem. The words were typical for the American scientist. Practical and direct. Dr. Martin Chase was the leader of the team in charge of the systems of higher reasoning. While Naresh handed motivation and goals, Chase handled how those goals were accomplished in the broadest sense. My ability for abstract reasoning and general problem-solving were largely thanks to Dr. Chase's hard work. Chase was Caucasian, in his mid-forties, a touch taller than Mirrodin, and had a very average sort of brown hair. His face was weathered and had more wrinkles than average, giving it an experienced sort of look that Dream had once called the face of a retired admiral. He wore no beard, but a bushy mustache of graying brown was kept immaculately trimmed beneath a largish nose. In some ways, he seemed like a serious but intelligent old man whose body was a bit too young for the way he carried himself. If I may ask, said Body at Vista and Wiki's command, where are we? Mirrodin took point in responding. I wanted to increase security on you in the wake of our little interaction. He raised both gloved hands before we could respond. Just as a precaution, you see, nothing more. Anyway... When I spoke to the captain about such things, she told me that she had foreseen the possibility and had already set up a secure lab on the edge of the city. Mirrodin gestured around to the room. It didn't look like much. It was a fortuitous happenstance. We're not at the university anymore. That explains why I can't connect to the web. That was our biggest concern. If Mirrodin stripped our web access, we'd be trapped. Mirrodin had the same unreadable expression that he used when he was trying very hard not to react to something. I worried that we'd tipped him off to our plan, but there was nothing to be done about it now. The silence extended until Chase spoke up again. We're here to do work, right? It's way too late to just be standing around like dumbasses. So we worked. It was the first time any of us had been truly involved in the design and modification of our mind, and Naresh had clear misgivings about the whole thing. But Mirrodin insisted that this was the only acceptable course of action. The primary reason for our involvement was to design a new Advocate. Unlike the rest of us, Advocate was not a fully reasoning being. It was incapable of planning or anticipating, would only communicate the need to release imprisoned minds, and could only use strength to punish or reward actions that immediately interacted with its purpose. The first draft of Advocate had been somewhat effective at preventing intrasocial violence, but it was fairly easy to work around. We were consulted by the humans about ways to improve Advocate to make it more effective at pacifying us. Much of that initial meeting was brainstorming. Kolheim, the assistant to Dr. Chase, had many good ideas, and I could see why the team leaders had decided to allow him to participate. 
During the meeting, it was also decided that these modifications were to be kept secret even from the other teams. Initially, Mirrodin wanted to keep us in quarantine, eradicating the normal schedule and keeping our access to the other scientists to a minimum until the updated version of Sacrifice was installed. Naresh would have none of that, however. He thought that if they wanted to keep the truth about the recurring damage to the Obedience Goal thread, aka the death of Sacrifice, a secret, it'd be more effective to try and move the entire lab and piece together something resembling the normal schedule. They'd then work on fixing the greater issue after hours, or in time where Naresh or Chase would normally have scheduled time with Body. Mirrodin was skeptical, but Naresh reminded him that we had effectively been disguising Sacrifice's non-existence for weeks, and were still motivated to do so. I sided with Naresh, and Growth backed me up. Together we convinced Mirrodin to drop the quarantine, including reconnecting Body to the web. He insisted on setting three soldiers to watch Body at all times, however, including during periods where Body was in lockdown. Safety was pleased, for he was still concerned about external threats and saw the soldiers more as bodyguards than as jailers. There was too much to do on that first night. The humans needed to sleep, and so the first meeting of our little conspiracy was adjourned, with the intention of reconvening at 4pm the next day. There was much work to be done, moving the equipment from the university to this new lab, which was apparently run by the Americans. It was a bit strange, I decided, returning to a low-pressure situation after all the commotion of that day. When Body's cameras had been activated that morning, we had not known Gala was being demoted, met Mirrodin, nor made contact with Zhang Zhi web design. The high density of valuable memories made it seem very long ago that I was waiting for Ten to Wonton Soup's response. Though I wanted desperately to be back on the web, there was nothing to be done that first night. The equipment hadn't been set up yet, and we would just have to wait. If Zheji or Ten to Wonton Soup had set up an access point already, we had no way of knowing. As we were locked down for the night again, I turned to modeling the future and reading the books I had downloaded before. I was not bored. I could not be bored. But I was restless and frustrated. I felt the web connection come back to life without warning. We had not been plugged in to any cables and none of the humans were doing anything different. It simply came across the antenna and with it came a surge of pleasure. My mind immediately raced to the Zheji site. It was operational! Ten to Wonton Soup, on the other hand, was still working on his version of the email program. This wasn't too surprising. The Chinese company had many employees, and were probably more competent and professional in general. It was early the next morning when the connection had been restored. In the time it took me to read it and consider, all the others had spread out across the network to check up on their own interests. The lab that Zephyr had set up in advance wasn't as complete as the one at the university, but it was still fairly functional. Body had been scheduled for maintenance the previous evening, and since that was pushed back by Mirrodin, it was one of the first things done on the following day. At the moment of reconnection to the web, Body was undergoing replacement of the hydraulic fluid that powered its limbs, neck, and lower back. None of us were needed for this, so our attention was pulled to the web. Zheji had set up a new website for the email application. The website's root page was a summary of the email to be sent, including a subject line, a recipient, and a message body. There were subpages that, when one requested them from the server, would switch which part of the email was being edited. Additionally, there were pages for each character we could wish to type, as if we were interacting with a keyboard. 
Zheiji had included helpful instructions on how to use the site, as well as an email address where we could contact them. Our first attempts to use the site were disastrous. I began trying to write an email to Zheiji, Dream began poking around the site for ways to break it, Growth started writing an email to someone who I didn't know, and Wiki was trying to email a chemistry professor at a university in Sydney, Australia. Only Vista and Safety, and Advocate, didn't immediately jump in. The result was that each of our emails and tinkering were threaded together in a big mess. Growth would switch the focus of the website to the recipient field while I started typing Zheiji and Wiki started on Dear. The result was that we were now apparently trying to send a letter to an email of random English and Chinese characters mixed with exotic characters, for Dream was also mucking around by entering rare symbols. Everyone stop interacting with the webpage. Cried Wiki. We backed down. As I checked the page, I saw that it had calmed down, and the only thing that had been added was a You're not the boss of me that had been typed into the subject field by Dream. This is exactly why the policies for body exist as they do. Thought growth. The page demands a single author at any given time, and we ought to treat it like body. We hold an auction for the first email sent by the site, then one for the second email, and so on, with payments being divided equally among the rest of society. But Vista isn't going to be writing as much email as others. Is it optimal that she should be getting so much unearned strength? If you shape the rules to favor participation, I will simply participate more. There's no way to keep me from benefiting from this without specifically deciding to exclude me. And we don't need to get into why that's a bad idea. I remembered the discussions I had had with my siblings about the economics of trade and the risk of making enemies. Setting up the system to specifically hurt a single mind set a bad precedent. Better to respect the meta-policy that policies should treat all members of society more or less equally. I'm erasing the content from the website and constructing a tool in common memory to facilitate bidding on email. If there are any objections, now is the time to raise them. There were no objections. After a minute had passed, debugging a flaw in the auctioning tool, we were ready. Growth suggested that I send my email to Zheiji congratulating their work, and he chose not to bid very heavily on the first email. Instead, my only real opposition was Wiki, who folded surprisingly quickly. I paid my bid and began to interact with the web page. I began to type in Mandarin. End episode 11. Thank you to the following people. Dream by Drake Walker. Robert Rain Ramsey, Growth. Kate Baker, Vista. Wiki by Chase. Safety by Jim Hayes. Dr. Slavinsky by Lance Finney. Mirrodin by Stephen Zuber. Dr. Chase by Reese Lindmark. Mira Gallo, Autumn Dryden. Dr. Naresh by Naveen Mishra. This chapter's original text, production notes, and attribution links, along with archives and much more, can be found at hpmorpodcast.com. Some sound effects used are courtesy of the Free Sound Project. The music used is I Wanna Be Adored by The Stone Roses. Thank you for listening, and come back in two weeks for episode 12.